This morning we're going to be learning from Jesus about children, and I just want to say from the outset, children are amazing. That's my way of nuancing things. Children are amazing. Sometimes when people tell me something that I think is good and I agree with it, I say, that's amazing. Sometimes when people tell me something and I think it's suspect and sounds strange, I might say, that's amazing. (laughs) It's like saying, oh, interesting, which is a way of being safe in a response. Well, children are amazing. They're amazing because in the Bible, sometimes adults are supposed to learn from children. And that's amazing. But sometimes in the Bible, children are supposed to grow up and be like adults. Or adults in the Bible are supposed to not act like children. Children are amazing. A couple of quotations from the Bible to kind of get us warmed up to this idea. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Like newborn infants, so the smallest of children... Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So, children, there's a sense in which I, as an adult, need to try to be like you or even the smallest of children because that's a good thing. Hungering like a small child with a hunger for God's word. Adults should try to be like children in that sense. Children are amazing. But there's also the negative side. Ephesians 4.14 says, so that we may no longer be children, spiritually speaking, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So there's a sense in which even adults need to not be like children. And we want children to not be like children because we want to be wise and discerning and know right from wrong, know so that we're not tricked or deceived. Likewise, the classic text is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, that says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So to get us warmed up, there's a sense in which we all should try to be childlike. Children and adults. And there's a sense in which we all need to avoid being, let's call it childish. So we want to be childlike in certain senses, but we don't want to be childish because that would show immaturity. Maybe this is why the disciples were confused when Jesus talked about children. I don't know for sure, but since there's nuancing involved, we don't want to be childish. Children are bad in that sense as an example, but we do want to be childlike. They're good in a certain sense as an example. It can be a bit confusing what we do with children when we're trying to think biblically. And the disciples are very confused and Jesus lets them know, lets them know that. And we're going to see this in the 19th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. So if you haven't already found nine, uh, Matthew 19, I'll invite you to go ahead and find your way to Matthew 19. We have been studying the gospel according to Matthew as a church. We've taken a little bit of time off and we're coming back to it. And we're dealing with this section where Jesus talks about children. 
So Jesus has just talked about in Matthew 19, he's talked about single people, married people, divorced people. He's talked about remarriage. And he cares for all of those kinds of people, men and women, single, married, divorced. So he's addressed that issue. And so it makes a lot of sense that he would have opportunity to talk about children. So he cares about the adults and they're thinking, and now he's caring about the children and even how the adults think about the children. Uh, as you're still perhaps finding your way to Matthew 19, uh, what's going on in the, the drama uh, of redemption in Matthew's gospel account would be Jesus is wrapping things up. His earthly ministry is coming to a close. We're, we're, we're quickly getting our way to Calvary, even though we're only in chapter 19 and there's 28 chapters. Uh, chronologically speaking, it's getting really, really close. Things are wrapping up, in other words. He's uh, been in the Galilee region, and he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And so things are really uh, moving along and moving forward. He's been healing. He's been teaching. He's been raising the dead. He's been doing all sorts of things, proving that he's the one people said he would be, that he's the, the true one who is the Messiah, who would come in the line of David, who could rule and reign forever if he's resurrected, and he will be. Um, that he has the power, he's the unique one, proving it again and again and again and again. And by this time, as on other occasions, there are massive crowds following him. They want to hear, they want to see, they want to experience, they want to benefit from him. Chapter 19 began by describing big crowds coming after him. Now let's jump in. 13 says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the children, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. My question for you is, What should we make of this? So you have parents, no doubt, grandparents perhaps, aunts and uncles perhaps, caring friends and neighbors perhaps. You you have adults bringing children to Jesus so that he would pray for them, so that he would bless them, which seems like a good thing to do. That's what's going on here. That would be even customary. Uh, in their world, and it's not altogether different from our our world. Uh, we we would like people who uh, are spiritual leaders to pray for our family. Sometimes uh, we know that the prayer of a righteous person is a powerful thing, according to the book of James. And so, think of it in terms of yes, it was common in their day to have a rabbi to pray for children, to pray for families, to bring blessing to them. Well, here is Jesus, the pastor, the teacher, the rabbi. And he's not only, uh, not just any rabbi, he's by now super famous. He's doing things that the other rabbis don't do, whether it's in his teaching or in the things that he's doing. He's extraordinary. And so I would want to be one of those kinds of people and bring my, my small children if I had them. Would you please pray for, for, for my son, for, for my daughter? Absolutely. It makes all the sense in the world that Jesus would do this for them. And I think the obvious thing we should see so far in our text would be this is good. This is good. This is right. This is righteous. This is what you would expect to have happen. 
And then comes the but, right? The but comes in verse 13 where we keep reading, the disciples rebuke the people. Same word that's uh, used in Matthew 16 for Peter when he hears about Jesus going to be, who's going to be crucified, who's going to be the, the, the substitute. I'm paraphrasing. But in chapter 16, when, when Peter hears Jesus talk about giving himself, dying, Jesus rebukes him. Over my dead body, that should never possibly happen. That's unthinkable. Stop it right now. We want want nothing to do with this. Post haste. Stop it immediately. No more of that bad acting. No more of that bad thinking. And we know Peter was not in the right. Well, similarly here, well-meaning parents, grandparents, or whoever else these people are, bring the children to Jesus, as you would expect, and the disciples say, you stop it. Now, the, the ESV translates it in a way that, that the people are rebuked, people who are bringing, and that's probably right, but some grammar experts would say it actually could include the rebuke not only aimed toward uh, the parents or whoever's bringing them, but even the rebuke aimed actually also to the children, regardless we know it's a bad look. We know it's not appropriate and it's wrong-headed, wrong-thinking. But I want to just play around with the idea for effect, if you will, and for appreciation um, that maybe the disciples could have given an argument as to why they would do this. Um, maybe I just want to make the confession temporarily because I know how it goes. I'm, I'm pretty smart. <laughs> Let, let's pretend like we don't know the rest of the story and we're the disciples. Jesus has made it clear he's going to Jerusalem. Um, Jesus has given most of his time addressing adults. He's talked about children. He cares about children. But Jesus has not been giving children seminars. Okay. Um, he's been focusing on adults. Jesus has shown himself to be the master teacher like no one else, not aiming to teach uh, children but adults. Like in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught like no one else taught. He's an extraordinary teacher, and he's not teaching at this level. He's teaching at this level, but in a way that people can understand, everybody can understand. I mean, think about the wisdom of Jesus. The wisdom of Jesus that's top-shelf kind of wisdom, high kind of wisdom. Um, that would make Solomon seem like a kindergartner kind of wisdom. And Solomon was considered the wisest person ever. Maybe, maybe for a fact, 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 34, and the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. That's 1 Kings 4.34, cross-reference to Matthew 12.42. Jesus said, something greater than Solomon is here. So we we even know from Jesus, he's wiser than Solomon. It's not been about children. And so in that sense, I want to side with the disciples who are still in process growing spiritually. He's on a timeline, time frame. Everything's happening for a reason. He's going to Jerusalem. It would make sense that he keep going toward Jerusalem. It would make sense that he's such a profound master teacher, uh, wiser than Solomon. Why would he, why would he? Waste his time with children, we might think. 
In him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. He's the king of kings. He's the great I am. I might be with the disciples saying, Scram. We're, we're doing more important things here. But we know better, don't we? We're going to see that, yes, everything is happening according to a plan. He is sovereign including spending time with the children because that's actually part of the plan too. And the disciples are going to learn this and hopefully we'll learn it as well. So as we approach verse 14, we read, but Jesus said, and before we let him speak, I hate to do this, but if we cross-reference to Mark's gospel account, Mark's gospel account says Jesus was indignant toward the disciples. So Jesus is sanctifiedly furious. I'm not going to say he's lost his cool because he always keeps his cool because he's perfect. But he is he's perfectly indignant. He's perfectly furious with the disciples because they're wrong-headed doing the wrong thing in Jesus' name. Okay? And so there's that response. So, So they rebuke the people, maybe the children... In the name of Christ, but Christ says with fury, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. So his fury is not aimed at the children and their families. It's aimed at the bad acting disciple adults. Ever so ironically, back in chapter 11, he referred to his disciples as little children and he meant it as a compliment. It's a positive Things are hidden from the wise and revealed to them little children. But like some of us, we're, they're kind of slow on the uptake, right? Just in chapter 18, he, he's already addressed this once. And he already addressed it, in a sense, in chapter 11. And now he's really addressing it. Let me ask you this question. So, so far, before we keep reading in verse 14... What should we conclude about Jesus' action in being indignant toward the disciples and then saying, let the children come to me. Let the little children come to me. What should we conclude about Jesus? And this is super easy. But we're reading between the lines. The text doesn't tell us this. But what would any thinking person conclude about Jesus? We would say Jesus is kind, caring, compassionate, We could use lots of different synonyms. Maybe for now we'll say Jesus cares about little children. I realize that's pretty surface level, but sometimes pretty surface level is pretty helpful level. Jesus cares about the children. Even when those who name his name don't seem to care about children, Jesus as a corrective, Jesus cares about the children and for the children. Now let's ramp that up a little bit more. Jesus cares, in light of what we know about Jesus, we could say Jesus not only cares for the children and about the children, we would say he cares perfectly for the children like no one else has ever cared for the children and he himself never had any children, which is fascinating. But if he is Jesus Christ the righteous, if he is that one, he cares more than any parent, grandparent, Nanny, you fill in the blank, has, can you think about that? That's more than I can get my mind around. Has ever cared for anyone, ever. 
I'm going to read Jesus into what his disciple will write later. And you'll see where I'm going for effect. Jesus loved perfectly the children. Jesus, as he was doing so, had perfect joy in loving them and caring for them. He had perfect peace with them. He had perfect patience with them. He had perfect kindness with them. He had perfect goodness with them. He had perfect faithfulness with them. He had perfect gentleness with them. He had perfect self-control with them. The fruit of the Spirit, like nobody's ever experienced it, was fully active in Jesus caring for children. I think we should be impressed with Jesus for lots of reasons. We should definitely be impressed with Jesus for his care for children. Perfectly caring for them. I spend a lot of my time as a parent, and any any of you who are parents or you know anything about parenting, and everyone who can understand the words I'm saying can understand it in principle, I spend a lot of time warning my children as they're growing up to not trust adults. Be careful. Watch out. Sometimes the ones that seem the nicest are up to the worst things. It's tragic that we have to do that. But experience tells us that you, you have to try to protect your children by having them to not, not be naive, to not be childlike in that sense. It's pretty amazing to think that Jesus was absolutely, perfectly, purely better than any actual parent trustworthy. And so when he says, let them come to me, he cares like nobody's ever cared before, which I have a hard time getting my mind around. I understand it in theory, but I I honestly do. But it does cause me to want to think more about that and to be more impressed with Jesus and his care and concern. And I would have you to know he calls all of us because of his work for us who believe in him, the children of God and the one who cares for us. Well, that's all implicit. None of that was stated in our passage, but I I hope you saw why I would want to say that. But there's something that's more explicitly stated here that uh, gives us some insight. And that's in verse 14 where we read a little further. You can go ahead and look there with me if you would. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. For to such, let them come to me because I want to teach you all a lesson from children. I not only care about them uniquely, but I I want you all to know that for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. If it belongs to you, you're part of it. If it belongs to you, you're a citizen if we're talking about a kingdom. If if it belongs to you, you're going to, to gain all of the benefits associated with belonging. Okay, And the kingdom of heaven, the Apostle Paul likens to the new creation and all that it entails. So if we want to learn about heaven and we want to learn about eternal life and we want to learn about the king and the kingdom and all of the benefits that would come to those who would be a part of it, he says, you should look at these children. Because to such belongs residents, participants, those who benefit from citizens, That tells us that you don't have to be adult-like to be a citizen of heaven. In fact, you need to be childlike to be a citizen of heaven. Two such belongs. They are possessors. People who are like these children. 
Then let's keep moving in verse 15. And he laid his hands on them. Doesn't say he prayed for them, but given that that's the request in verse 13, um, the two go hand in hand, so you would obviously conclude he lays his hands on them and he prays for them. And then it says, and went away. My next question for you is, so what, what does that accomplish? Laying his hands on them, surely praying for them. What, what, what did that accomplish? Well, it accomplishes him visibly, kindly, compassionately, as would be the custom of the day, praying. Because you're going to touch, care, concern, not above it, affection, compassion, appropriately so. It shows that Jesus was personal, warm-hearted, tells us something important about Jesus is what it accomplishes. Not to mention the fact that he prayed for them. I wonder what he prayed. Let's not speculate all day long. Probably not very helpful, but maybe he prayed for their physical well-being in a world that would have been ravaged with childhood death. That they would live long lives. Maybe he prayed that they would have parents and uh, grandparents and families that would love them and cared for them and taught them the scriptures. But you know what? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I'm going to ask you to think about it. Whatever Jesus prayed for these children who came to him, what? Came to pass. The prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. James tells us we're talking about Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's his father. Whatever he asks his father, his father's not going to give him, give him a, a bad gift in return. He's the son, the perfect faithful son, and he perfectly knows the will of God. Unlike us, we pray the best we can according to Romans 8, but we don't know exactly how to pray because we, we're not sovereign and we don't know the sovereign will of God. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the sovereign. How about that? Whatever he prayed for these young ones happened. It's one reason why we love the fact that the Bible teaches that he intercedes for us. And he prays effectually. Not I hope sowingly, right? Effectually. Fascinating to think. If, and I'm not saying he did, I don't know, if he prayed for each of their, were there five of them? Were there 25 of them? Were there 50 of them? Were there 102 of them? I don't know. But if he prayed for their conversion, how many of them would have been converted? Every single one of them. Interesting to think about. Maybe your theology won't allow you to have those same convictions, but um, I'll just let you think about it. <laughs> a Savior who saves, a Son who is faithful, He prays for them. It also shows us by praying for them um, and, and caring for them 
in verse 15, before he goes away, it shows us that he, he's caring for people who would commonly be overlooked in a first century society. Unless you were the son or daughter of an important person, um, and you more than likely weren't esteemed the way we esteem children commonly in our culture. So he doesn't overlook them. He doesn't take advantage of them. He cares for them and prays for them. It also shows us that growing disciples are sometimes very, very short-sighted. In so many ways, the disciples were on the right track. He's going to Jerusalem. He's been focusing on adults. He's wiser than Solomon. They would have had Bible verses to back up their convictions. Good Bible verses. But there's, there's more to it. They're short-sighted. And sometimes growing disciples are short-sighted and we need a good corrective from Jesus. Sometimes maybe even if he's indignant about it. And I hope we're growing disciples. In addition to that, this, this what he teaches here just complements what he's taught in the past. We, we just saw in Matthew 18 him teach something very complementary to what he's teaching here with these children. In Matthew 18 verse 1, that Jesus is asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And do you remember how he answers? He calls a child and says, my paraphrase, unless you're like a child, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. You have to be humble. You don't bring anything. It's free. It's provided for you. You have to have childlike faith, not childish faith. Who's going to be the greatest? If you go to a library or a bookstore, do we still have bookstores? No, we do. We, we do. If you go to my library even, I have a small section, a biography section, but if you go to a library or a bookstore or a personal library and you go to the biography section, you probably aren't going to find any biographies of infants. I don't have any, I don't think. A biography of an infant. We, we write biographies of people because they're great. Because they're men or women who did great things and they were strong against adversity, against all odds, or they failed and then they came back around, or they've done what other people aren't willing to do. But it's because they, they do great things. They're powerful people. Even amidst weakness. Or difficulty. Or martyrdom. And here, Jesus turns, turns everything on its head. In Matthew 18, if you recall, unless you become like a child, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you repent is there. Unless you, you, you become like them, I can't do anything. I'm helpless. I'm, I don't provide anything in and of myself. That's how he answers the greatness question. So here with Jesus, chapter 19, it's kind of coming up again. Growing short-sighted disciples, people like us, you got to get this in your mind. You got to. Children are amazing. He's not calling for being childish. He's calling for being childlike. Which makes all the sense in the world if he's going to do all of the work necessary to get us our citizenship. I would like to have us step back and wrap up with some takeaway points. I have a few of them here and then a final text. The first one on my list. Christians 
who bear the name Christ, remember. Christians, we belong to Christ. So Christians, if we're trying to be like Him or imitate Him or belong to Him by faith, Christians should care for children. Super simple, super obvious, I know that. Christians, of all people, should care for children. Christians should, should care for children. The word that he uses would be all the way from, infant, from being an infant to being almost a teenager. We of all people should care for children. Christ cared for children like no one has ever cared for children. We're not Christ, but we do bear his name. And so with God's help, by the fruit of the Spirit, we, we of all people should be compassionate, kind, generous, thoughtful, patient with children. It, it shows Christ-likeness. We should care enough for children to point them to Christ. Right? The, most, the greatest thing we can do when it comes to care, Jesus is the one who, when he was on earth, said, let them come to me. Well, I want to care about children enough to say the best thing you can do, better than my care, and I, I want to be the best caring parent I could be. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to fail you. I'm going to sin against you. But you can look to Jesus, and he will never let you down. Christians should care for children, care enough to point them to Christ, even beyond ourselves. Christians should care enough not to turn our children into idols, Christians should care enough to help them grow, children to grow. Christians should care enough to keep them from being murdered by the millions like we do in our culture. Heinous, grotesque, and vile. This assumes that they're alive. Another point to take away that I plan to take away today. Hopefully you do as well. Christians, being followers of Christ, should care for those who are not children. A weird thing to say, I know, I'll admit it, on a day like today when we're looking at a child emphasis passage. But we also should care for people who aren't children. Here's why I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that because when we look at the whole gospel account... He definitely cares for children. No question about it. Absolutely he does. Even to the point of being rebuked by people who think it's inappropriate. Jesus cares for children, but we, we see he doesn't only care, he doesn't care only for children. He cares for adults so much so he says you need to be childlike. 90% and don't, don't quote me on, I mean don't, don't test me. I'm just picking that number off the top of my head. But 90% of what he's done has been with adults. If not more, the overwhelming majority has been him trying to help adults, maybe to learn from children, but his ministry has not been all about children, though it includes children. The emphasis has been on, on adults, so I'm not asking for an either or. I'm just saying let's not make this the, uh, let's not make this the only thing in our Bibles. It's been done. Jesus cares about children from infancy, the smallest children. All the way, he cares about adults, he cares for old people, he cares for the elderly people, we see it throughout his whole ministry. So let's not be that church who makes these few verses we're looking at our sole identity. 
It's happened time and time and time and time again. Well, we've got to do it for the children. We've got to do it for the children. We've got to do it for the children. Because after all, Jesus says, let the children come to me as if they're the only verses in the Bible. And many a church has had its own funeral without knowing it. Because what happens is the children figure out the church is for children. And children don't stay children. And children don't therefore stay at the church that was all about and only for children. So on a day like today, I don't want to overswing the other direction, but both things have been true. Jesus cares about all different kinds of people. All different kinds. One final takeaway that's going to sound really strange to most of you. And I'm glad it's going to sound really strange to most of you. Let's learn what Christians shouldn't learn from this. What we shouldn't learn from this, what we shouldn't learn from these few verses is that there's no place in the local church for something like nursery. Let's not learn there's no place in a Christian church for things like nursery, for things like children's Sunday school, for things like youth group. And if that sounds strange to you, because it seems to me like we would do those things because we care for children. I mention it because there are Bible-believing Christian churches, people who believe the gospel just like we do, who would say, and they would use these verses we're looking at today as proof that nursery is of the devil and youth group is of the devil and Sunday school, children's Sunday school is of the devil. Let's not be those people. I understand how, how it happens and why it happens. Here's what happens. We see something like a poorly done, weak, watered-down youth ministry. Okay? And then maybe let's do this. Let's have their service be during this service. And then when they grow up and become adults, they come to adult church and they think, what in the world? So they just start a new youth church with adults, and that's gross. But I digress. <laughs> and so what, what we do sometimes is we say, you know, that, that, that's, that's, we don't just want clowning around. So what we do is we over-pendulum swing and we say, it's all bad. And it's all weak. And it's all stupid, and it's all of the devil, and so we're only going to do family integrated because nursery is bad. It's an over pendulum swing, and I'm not saying all family integrated people do it that way, but it runs in those faucets. And I don't want Omaha Bible Church to be that kind of church. I want Omaha Bible Church to be the church not that puts on our website our few verses. Therefore, no nursery, because we're godly, because Jesus said, let the children come to me. The text doesn't say, make sure you don't have nursery, make sure the children are always in corporate worship. <laughs> I'm going to argue, let's have some sanctified common sense and try to do all ministry well, ministry to adults, ministry to children, ministry to families. And to do our very best at having them be well done and thoughtful and biblical and honoring to Christ, the one who says, let the children come to me. 
What exactly does that look like? He teaches it. He blesses them, prays for them, and he leaves. I think it's good that he leaves. He gives a lot of freedom for a lot of different cultures at a lot of different times to do things in ways that can honor Christ. So keep some of those things in mind. Um, it's so interesting how we overreact to things sometimes. Um, this, is, this is not the one we're talking about here, but you see it even today. Um, well, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop. We'll save it for a different time. I literally did look up churches yesterday, and here, these are the proof texts. Um, we want a good nursery. By the way, you should sign up for nursery because nursery is a good way to love children. Okay, I digress. We want to end on this note. Here's what we want to do. There's another time. There's at least one. There might be more, but I don't have a great memory. So I know there's at least one more time coming where we're going to see adults needing to learn from children and adults act being bad at adulting. Okay, And we're going to see it in an awesome, profound way. And it's when Jesus, triumphal entry, Matthew chapter 21, and he shows up and the religious adults are not doing a good job adulting and they're not seeing things clearly. They're so calloused and hard-hearted. And it's the children, actually, who are on display leading in doing the right thing. And it is grand. Listen, if you will, to Matthew 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes, the adults, saw the wonderful things that he did, what do small children typically conclude when they see wonderful things? They conclude that there are wonderful things happening, right? It's it's not childishness, it's childlikeness. You see something wonderful, it might just be that something wonderful is happening. There might be someone wonderful behind the wonderful things. Well, that's what's going on here. They see the wonderful things that Jesus did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Through the mouth of babes, right? They're seeing Him for who He is. He's proven it again and again. He's the one that we can trust. He's the one who brings fulfillment as the Son of David, the one who can rule and reign forever if He's raised from the dead and He's going to be. We know how it ends. And then it says, and they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? <laughs> Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? From the mouth of babes, prophecy is understood. The wonderful one who's doing wonderful things is understood. That's not childishness. That's childlikeness. And it's something we can all learn from even the smallest of children. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together in this brief passage. Give us wisdom how we might love children. Uh, give us wisdom how as to how we might do that in a way that would bring honor and glory to you. Uh, help us to love people who aren't children and to have a robust ministry to people who are of all ages who need to hear the truth about Christ and to follow him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.